0: What a privilege to come together today. I, I attended, I believe it was the first Doxicon Seattle in 2014, six years ago, and the second in 2015. And then life got busy, but now returning after a five-year absence, it's a homecoming and it's it's a pleasure that we're all together again. And this year, our theme is coming together we're reflecting on community, on family, and on belonging, on bloodlines. Speculative fiction gives us this chance to investigate our reality, to interrogate it, to see what we really do and who we really are. By imagining every possible type of community, we begin to see the boundaries of our human concept of community, of family, of belonging, Of blood. The congregation that I serve has its own unique bloodlines. Most of our people are recent immigrants. Some indeed are refugees from Iraq, from Syria, from the Holy Land, Jordan, Lebanon. Many live on the other side of the world from their parents, from their siblings, from their home community my role in the parish is the English language ministry so most of the time I find myself speaking mostly to teenagers and to young adults people raised in Canada by parents from far away bloodlines in their ancestral communities but belonging also to this place with its languages with its cultures their families are very different from my own and childhoods very different from what mine was. This is a challenge for me when I prepare sermons. In preaching, good communication is aided by the use of illustrations, examples, stories, metaphors. We recall that our Lord often taught in parables, and by likening the kingdom of God to concrete realities in the Holy Land of the first century, And it's good for us preachers to do the same thing. But in order to make good connections with good illustrations, we have to be in touch with the people we're engaging. Had Christ been preaching in China in the Han Dynasty, he would have used examples from China in the Han Dynasty. Had he preached to first century Palestinians using examples from the Han Dynasty, they wouldn't have understood him. Likewise, when I preach to the English speakers at St. Joseph Antiochian Orthodox Church in Delta, BC, I have to use examples that they understand. One of my constant frustrations is how often I think of examples and illustrations that are perfect. They bring the gospel to life in beautiful ways, but I can't use them because my congregation won't understand them because they didn't grow up watching Star Trek. today. I get to use those illustrations. We're going to look at some of the ways in which the many species and civilizations and empires of the Star Trek universe resemble the kingdoms and families and bloodlines of this world. We're going to ask what the gospel has to say to the cultures of the Star Trek universe. And because these speculative cultures are are reflections of our own culture, we're asking our Lord to shed new light on what the gospel has to say to us. What the eternal, when the eternal word of God took on human flesh, when he was born in a Palestinian home under Roman occupation, the announcement of his arrival was a comfort, was a joy to many. Learned religious scholars, pious and wise pagans, traveled far from the east to greet him. Shepherds in their fields rejoiced. The hosts of heaven declared the advent of peace on earth and the great goodwill of God upon all humanity. Today, on the Julian calendar, the church recalls the elder Simeon and the prophetess Anna meeting the infant Christ and rejoicing that they had seen with their own old eyes the salvation of the Lord and the comfort of his people. And indeed, throughout his ministry, Christ drew near to him people who found in him shelter from their demons, remission of their illnesses, relief for their hunger, and life for their dying souls. To this very day, the good news of the kingdom of God here with us is good news to many. The gospel is justice for the oppressed, sight for the blind, liberty for the captives, Dignity for the poor, identity for the orphan, home for the exile. When the gospel leaps across cultural divides, when it transcends languages and culture and geography and politics to reach new people in new places, they are transformed. To tell maligned cultures that they are, as themselves, (coughs) created in the image of the good God and well worth saving. In Kenya, where I grew up, the authentic gospel of the Orthodox Christian faith was good news to indigenous people who were being weighed under the burden of a foreign colonial false gospel. A gospel which said that Scottish culture was holy and Kikuyu culture profane. That Europeans were smart enough to teach the word of God, but that Africans were capable only of obeying. As Orthodox Christians, the Kikuyu and the Banyore, and later many, many other peoples, found themselves united not by having their identities obliterated, but by their unique cultural identities being respected and nurtured and joined together into the common identity of the Eucharistic bond. The gospel truly is good news. So we will ask, how is the gospel good news to the worlds of Star Trek? How is the gospel good news to the Klingons, to the Ferengi, to the Bajorans, to us? The gospel is not always received as good news. Our Lord's birth was met with joy and with violence. Kings from the east traveled to greet him, but a king in Jerusalem sent warriors to slay him. On the day that Christ stood in the Nazareth synagogue, reading the scroll of Isaiah, he announced good news to the poor, healing to the brokenhearted, release to the prisoners, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, and on that day, these words of unconstrained grace enraged his neighbors. And Jesus' very community, the people of his hometown, tried to fling him from a mountaintop. The gospel is a scandal. The gospel dethrones the mighty and starves the rich. The gospel is not awed by power or bought for a price. The gospel has no interest in anybody's reputation. Every culture that the gospel enters, it shocks. The Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, Foolishness. So, we will also ask, how does the gospel scandalize the worlds of Star Trek? How does it enrage the Tlingons, perplex the Ferengi, betray the Bajorans? How does the gospel offend us? <clears throat> Let's start our gospel trek on Kronos, or as humans call it, chronos. Kronos is the home world to the Klingon people. What is the highest Klingon value? Courage. Bet. Honor. Honor is the code of ethics for a Klingon. How do you make a decision? You take the course of action that is honorable. Bet. Put. lo In. Push. Honor is more important than life. To die in battle is honorable. To be defeated without being killed is the greatest shame of all. Or even greater, to be executed rather than to die fighting. We lost our honor, says the Klingon prisoner, Kor when we were captured at the Battle of Kittimer. An explosion had rendered a group of warriors unconscious when they awoke, they found that they had become prisoners of the invading Romulan Empire. Now, alive, having been captured, says Elkor, it does not matter what happens to us. All that matters, says his fellow prisoner, Giral, is that our families are not dishonored. The honor of the bloodline is crucial. If these prisoners' dishonor is made known, then their families back in the Klingon Empire will become dishonored. They will lose their place and their standing in society. The best-known Klingon, Worf, son of Moh, he faces this dilemma when it's reported that his father, who had died in Kittimer, had actually been a traitor. His father had secretly sent Kittimer's defense codes to the invading Romulans, allowing them to overwhelm and massacre the colony. This is a false accusation. The real traitor was father to Duras, a powerful member of the Klingon High Council. For Duras to lose his honor would result in a civil war. Since Worf serves the Federation, lives outside the empire, and his father Moh has no other known heirs, the council chooses to let the dishonor fall not where it truly belongs, but where it will do the least harm. Worf accepts this unjust shame He accepts this commendation which renders him, in the eyes of fellow Klingons, worse than dead. Life without honor is no life at all. Honor and shame. The honor of the father is shared with the son, and the shame of either is the shame of both. This is the Klingon way. The truth is not paramount. The house of Duras deserves shame, but because it's politically expedient for Duras to keep his position, shame is placed where it does not belong on the house of Mo. Yet the dishonor, although falsely placed, in the Klingon world, the dishonor is real. Worf lives with dishonor. His brother Kern, however, does not because the truth of Kern's identity is a secret um, it wasn't known that Moog had another son and so honor and shame in the Klingon tradition are real where they are placed not where they really belong so you see the importance of bloodline here you see what Klingon family values look like, you see the necessity of keeping the family in honor, keeping them out of shame <clears throat> One Klingon's actions bring honor or shame to the entire family. The consequences of a Klingon's actions never fall on him or her alone. A Klingon is his brother's keeper. How would the gospel be received on Konosh? Would the Klingons welcome Christ? Two of the gospels begin with genealogies. Jesus Christ's earthly lineage, we are clearly shown, is honorable. He comes from the house of David, a good house. And our faith, like Klingon culture, honors the good death. Our liturgical hymns praise the valiant deaths of many saints. In their courageous contests for you, they cast down the tyrants. We say this to praise many brave saints who died a glorious death in battle for the Lord. Warriors! I imagine that Klingons would also relish the glory of the resurrection, the image of the courageous Son of Man who storms Hades itself, puts to shame the power of the Evil One, and ascends victorious to Stovulkor. But what sort of warrior? To a Klingon, the death of Christ makes no sense. He allowed his enemies to take him. He put up no resistance. He accepted the gross, humiliating execution of death on the cross. He shamed his house and his family. As son of man, the death of Christ shames the human race. As the son of God, he shames the creator. He does not die a warrior's death. When the high priests came to arrest Jesus in the garden, His Klingon disciple would have acted, would have attacked, would have been the one to cut off the ear of that adversary and would have been flabbergasted by the Lord's response. What? Put away my sword? Do you not know, master, that those who live by the bat'leth die by the bat'leth? Would you deny me an honorable death? Would you deny an honorable death to yourself? nor do these glorious saints die what the Klingons would see as a warrior's death. That courageous contest, well, they didn't kill anyone. They do not fight for Christ. The martyrs die shameful deaths. They are executed. The Klingon must learn what our hymns for the martyrs announce, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, that our earthly enemies are not our enemies. We die as the Lord died for their salvation. By accepting death at their hands and by absolving them of the shame their ignorance brings upon themselves, we win victory for them against the adversary who seeks to destroy both them and us together. Of course, our faith reveals that this martyrdom of blood is not to be sought. If it comes, we accept death joyfully, willingly. We do not seek it. But even if we're given long life, we know that death awaits, and we understand that the path of eternal life is death to the world to live as one who has already died like a discommendated Klingon and to be joined already to life eternal. Now, do you know who might understand the point of martyrdom? Do you know who might witness Christ's humiliation and see the prophet? Let me paint a picture. The Klingon High Council on Kronosh the heads of two great houses have brought their dispute before the council and they will resolve it in the most honorable way a duel, a fight to the death each raises his batleth and then one of the warriors throws his weapon away his opponent, Dagor, is renowned in battle but the unarmed warrior, Quark has never fought before does not wish to fight now you see, Quark is no Klingon at all he is a Ferengi a man whose interests typically lie in profit, profit, in commerce, in saving his own skin at all costs. He's been roped into this duel against his will, and he's found his way out. Cork says, go ahead, kill me. That's why I'm here, isn't it, to be killed? Well, here I am, so go ahead and do it. You all want me to pick up that sword and try to fight him, don't you? But I don't have a chance, and you know it. You only want me to put up a fight so your precious honor will be satisfied. Well, I'm not going to make it so easy for you. Having me fight Degore is nothing more than an execution, so if that's what you want, that's what you'll get, an execution. No honor, no glory. And when you tell your children and grandchildren the glorious story, of how you rose to power and took Rilke's house from her, I hope you remember to tell them how you heroically killed an unarmed Ferengi half your size. The martyrs, by accepting death, by not engaging in this struggle for earthly glory, put to shame those the powers of evil who tried to win glory over them. Now, in Star Trek, the Ferengi are, I mean, they're used for comedy, right? They're made such ridiculous characters. You know, their insane greed, their gross misogyny, their gigantic ears, it makes it hard to take them seriously. But we can, and let's let's take them seriously. Ferengi culture is governed by an ethical code known as the Rules of Acquisition. Ferengi virtue is judged by how well a man lives up to this code, and I say a man because we know this is a society of, for, and by men. A man's virtue is judged by how well he lives up to the code, how much profit he acquires. The scandal of the gospel is apparent. Ferengi rule of acquisition number one. Once you have their money, you never give it back. Rule 10 greed is eternal. Rule 98, if you can't take it with you, don't go. How shocking the Lord's counsel to the rich young ruler, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, come take up the cross and follow me. How senseless his message, blessed are the poor. At first blush, it may be hard for us humans to see anything redeemable in Ferengi culture and Indeed, the humans of Star Trek instinctively recoil in the presence of Ferengis. Ferengi have a reputation for corruption, for exploitation, for gross profiteering, lack of concern for anyone. If any Ferengi person is noble or altruistic or is striving to be kind or generous or just or fair, that Ferengi would still be treated by most humans as scum, would not even be looked at as a person, Well, this is why Ferengi make a great illustration for the tax collectors in Scripture. This is exactly how the Pharisees pictured the tax collectors profiteers, greedy, corrupt, unclean, irredeemable. The notion of a good tax collector is as stupid as the notion of an honest Ferengi. It's just not possible. As Grand Nagus Zech might put it himself, the salvation of a Ferengi is inconceivable. (laughs) Now, picture Jesus entering Jericho. He calls a Ferengi down from the tree, goes to stay at the Ferengi's home. Can you picture the shock? The total lack of comprehension on the face of all the humans? And just as the gospel tells warriors what real eternal victory is, so the gospel also speaks to the merchant. Rule of acquisition number 62. The riskier the road, the greater the profit. Matthew 7:14: Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. Rule number two. The best deal is the one that brings the most profit. Matthew six twenty and 21. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's not forget the parable of the talents. Use the master's resources wisely. Make profit for the kingdom of heaven and great are the eternal rewards. The fundamental error of Ferengi culture is not its business acumen. Rather, it's the foolish investment in gold-pressed latinum instead of the eternal currency of the kingdom. Now, finally, of all the cultures in Star Trek, the one that's most ready to hear the gospel, the one that resembles first-century Palestine most closely, The people who are deeply spiritual and who long for salvation, surely those people are the Bajorans under Cardassian occupation. The show Deep Space Nine, the third of the Star Trek shows, begins shortly after liberation. Memory of the Cardassian occupation remains at the foreground of Bajoran minds and it strongly colors their attitudes. The Cardassian Empire is famously cruel, and Cardassians treated the Bajoran people like scum. Bajor is a 500,000 year old civilization, renowned for its accomplishments in science, mathematics, philosophy, the arts, long before humans even learned to speak. Guided by spiritual beings called the prophets, Bajorans have a deeply rooted and rightly proud identity. They hate Cardassians not just for the empire's cruelty but for the affront of its very presence, defiling the purity of their superior society. The Bajoran occupational government, puppets answering to the Cardassian overlords, the Bajoran occupational government was reviled and its officials were viewed as traitors to the Bajoran people. Well, if you're looking for an illustration to explain Judea and Galilee in the time of Christ, Here it is. The Romans are the Cardassians. Their centurions are like the Cardassian gulls. The government of King Herod, a puppet to the Romans, is an affront to Jewish identity. And those tax collectors, they're reviled not only because of their supposed greed, but even more so because of their impurity. They're like Bajorans working as collaborators for the Cardassian-controlled government. They are agents of an illegitimate power They're an affront to identity. And the religious leaders on Bajor, those who insist that liberation will come when the people are righteous and pure, well, these are the Pharisees. In the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, we can easily see what the hope of the Messiah would be, the hope for a chosen one, to overthrow the oppressor, to expel the collaborators, to restore the land for the faithful, the righteous, the pure, how well a Bajoran would have understood so much of the gospel, and how much a Bajoran would have clamored to crucify the Lord. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He has fellowship with collaborators, with the people whose treasonous livelihoods enable this brutal occupation. And he has fellowship with the impure, those whose sins corrupt the fidelity of the people, and make them unworthy of liberation. This Nazarene, he's no freedom fighter. It's extraordinary to read in the Gospels that the Pharisees made common cause with the Herodians, that those committed to the righteousness of the people collaborated with the depraved Roman government to get rid of Jesus. He offended everyone. This would be like a Bajoran resistance shell sharing information with the occupational government, and working together with Gul Dukat himself. So scandalous was the Lord's insisting that his gospel is good news for all people, even the enemy. Warriors, merchants, the oppressed, these are all present in human culture. All these worlds of Star Trek, All the illustrations we can pull from it, all the illustrations we can pull from whatever our favorite speculative universe is, these are all for us. Whatever your situation, the gospel brings hope and light. Our identity in Christ illumines and redeems our bloodlines, saves our families, gives hope to our communities fastens our local belonging within that great belonging, that union with eternity. Glory to God. Now, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. Are you scandalized? I am. If you Google that verse, the results are all the same. Jesus wasn't saying that! He, he was exaggerating. He was just trying to make a point. When he said hate, he didn't mean hate. Our culture is a little tender here, isn't it? Especially for those of us who are Christians. We who affirm traditional values in the face of a culture that can be hostile, that can be antagonistic to family, that seeks to separate and alienate and isolate, we rightly take a stand for family values. For our Lord to turn around and tell us to hate our family. That feels like a betrayal, doesn't it? If we have a superficial idea of hate, hate means having unpleasant feelings about somebody or wanting them to get hurt. Yeah, that's not what the Lord is saying. But recall that he tells us to love our enemies which doesn't mean having nice fuzzy feelings about them, but it does mean to lay down our lives for their salvation. A Klingon who followed Christ to the cross would bring shame to his entire family. A Klingon martyr, the house would fall. The community would be outraged, the bloodline forever tainted. A Klingon who accepts shame in place of honor is no Klingon, no longer belongs. How could your father or your mother, spouse or children, brothers or sisters, how could they see your actions being executed rather than fighting as anything but hate for your family? You are their ruin. You hate us, they cry out. They hit us where it hurts. And so we hurt. We endure the humiliation. We bear the weight of the cross and we follow behind the Lord. But there is a blessing, because as those closest to us become enemies, well, we know what to do with enemies, love them, lay down our lives for them. But the love is not on their terms. It does not mean whatever they want it to mean. Our love might be received as hatred. Now a word for the Ferengi. Which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Always count the cost. And Ferengi indeed knows something about hating family. Rule of acquisition number six, never allow family to get in the way of opportunity, but the opportunity to lose your life? Count the cost if you wish to be a disciple of the Lord, if you wish to be united to the precious, all-holy, life-giving blood of Jesus Christ, you must be willing to release all other bloodlines. If you wish to be called out into that great ecclesia, the eternal community, the bride of Christ, you must relinquish allegiance to all other communities. If God is your father and the church is your mother, You cannot obey an earthly father or mother who demands that you leave the Lord for their sake. If you belong to the eternal kingdom of heaven, then no lesser allegiance can hold you captive. Ajor for Bajorans, but the kingdom for the life of the world. And here's the catch bloodlines fail, communities disperse, families die, empires fade. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of our Savior endure. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man, even a Ferengi, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? For the Son of Man will come with the glory of his Father, with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works." Matthew 16, 26 to 27. And in Matthew 10, 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. If you love your family, your community, your bloodline, all who claim your allegiance, if you love them to the end, bearing the cross of the Lord, Enduring the humiliation of eternal, authentic, life-changing love. If your love is so strong, so otherworldly, that it's received as hate. This is the hope that saves every quadrant of the galaxy. The eternal kingdom is the only salvation of any kingdom. The eternal love among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit spilling over and extending throughout the cosmos, this is the family within which all families can endure. The life-giving body and blood of our Lord is the bloodline in which other bloodlines can last. If we belong to eternity, then there is hope for all those who claim our allegiance. And this hatred of family is understood as death to all allegiances, even one's own life. Death to the world brings the world back to life. And so, because we find our identity in the eternal identity of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, because we know that the only path to life passes through death. because we die daily to ourselves and live daily in that kingdom here on earth, we can say with the full-throated joy of the bravest Klingon warrior that today is a good day to die. Today's also a good day for questions. (laughs) Maybe you have questions for me, but I'll start with a question for you. To get the conversation going, answer if you like. How would the gospel be received by the Q continuum? (laughs) Why?
1: It could be foolishness. If they're the Q, they're everything. What do they need to know? What
0: what do they have to offer them? I mean, taking material form. You, know, you remember when, when Q is cast out of the communion, become commun- the continuum, who becomes a human, and it's just ah, oh, repulsed. Are there any it's questions? Almost kind of the inverse of our Lord. like
1: he sort of he, he became man, but he didn't do so voluntarily.
0: Q, right? Yeah. It, he uh, he was cast down, not of his own will. Yeah. Are there any questions? Yes. The are often
2: characterized with this. There's, it's often portrayed as honor equals pride and arrogance, but there is a form of
0: honor that is good and right. Mm-hmm. What does that look like within the Christian community, of that sense of honor done well? Any thoughts? Anyone else have a response to that? Mm -hmm. And this Klingon saying, the, the shame—I have it written somewhere in here—but the the shame of the father is the shame of the son, and the other way around. You know, this understanding that whatever I do, you know, has consequence for my whole family. I, I think there's there's something in there that maybe our culture forgets, where we, you know, we think that what we do doesn't affect anybody else, and and the Klingon understands that. You know, my, my dishonor is my father's dishonor, my brother's dishonor, and likewise, my honor can can redeem a fallen family. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, some countries with, like, Orthodox communities, like I think
0: about Japan, I mean, mm-hmm. um, they historically did have a code of honor similar to that. Yeah. Um, I think, actually, the Klingon was based on Japan, That's what I understand, is that the Klingon idea of honor was based on... Japanese culture, feudal Japanese culture, oh, I yeah. I feel like, you know, when the, uh, when, uh, I can't really name the saint, but the saint who Nicholas. Nicholas, yeah. About, um, when he preached about, you know, like, like Paul Sobhavi, one of the first converts, was a samurai. Yeah. Uh, they probably would have had very similar feelings of the gospel that the Klingons had, right? I, th- about, I think it's quite possible, yeah. About, like, it being dishonorable for Christ to come down and,
3: and actually die. Yeah. At death, you
0: know? Yeah, and, and so it's, you yeah. know, it, it, it flips it on its head, you know, what is real glory? What is real honor? Well, it's, it's the opposite of what a Tlingon believes honor and glory to be. But if we take the eternal view, we see that the martyr in willingly giving up their life saves the enemy and struggles together with the earthly enemy against the real adversary. And that's, and there is eternal victory in that apparent earthly dishonor. I, I think perhaps that's the way we'd go about that. Uh, yes? Um, I
2: thinking that a uh, few of the other uh, continuum folks mm-hmm. might actually be somewhat receptive. Okay. One thing he struggles with is essentially
0: boredom. Yeah. And what they have is all power and everything, and uh, he seems to be searching for a meaning. for
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah, so um yeah I think he would be possibly very interested,
0: but they certainly wouldn't be impressed with miracles. Um they no. were more impressed by uh the sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, And, and just to, to be sure everyone's on the same page, the Q are these godlike, all-powerful beings. That one, one in particular named Q, likes to come and bother the the crew of the Enterprise. Um, yeah, and, and in in the episode where Q is cast out of the continuum and made mortal, what happens at the end of the episode? He he realizes that. Yeah, there's these other aliens who have found him and are coming to kill him because he had done something bad to them and that all of the Enterprise will be destroyed and so he leaves the Enterprise and goes to face death alone to save the crew and, and he does, you know, in that moment although his incarnation was involuntary he does go to a voluntary death. mm
3: mm-hmm. analogous to like, some of the Greek
0: philosophy that was existing at the time? I, I think that may have even been intentional. The Vulcans are like the Greeks and the Romulans like the Romans. Is that, Has yeah. anyone else heard that? Romulus, Romulus was one of the yeah. founders of the Roman Empire, so. yeah. uh, The Stoics would be definitely the yeah. Vulcans. The Vulcans, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, if I were more familiar with the original series, which, which I hope to be before long, um, I think... I think exploring that would be very interesting and very fruitful.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a question for you, Jennifer. In general, if anyone wants to tackle it, how would the gospel be received by the board? Oh
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yes. Yeah. is very. I, I think her sense of the power of community and yet the the, the beauty and individualism. She struggles mm-hmm. with.
0: Yeah, the, the Borg. It would almost be like a sort of pantheism where the, you know, the individual, the discrete person, is completely has no identity, right? Um, in uh, I Borg, you know, where the one Borg is isolated, and is given a name, is named you. You know, this concept of I am is just is it, is very hard to grasp. And so certainly the, the concept of, of relationships which are discrete personalities coming together and having communion with one another without being assimilated would be, I, I think certainly would be, would be a, um, a scandal. The scandal would be the you know the individualism, the discreteness, but but the the understanding of this communion of sharing. I, I think would come very naturally to the Borg. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The idea of free will and this being an important uh, and original sin, the fall, uh, that would make no sense. And as you say, the um, individual choice against evil and for good would make absolutely no sense, as well as respecting God's creation, you know, the body. Yeah.
0: to be united without assimilate being assimilated. That's the that's the challenge. Yeah, I
1: would, uh, I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of realizing that the board are basically the sci fi incarnated version of like you remember the screw tape letters when they talk about the miserably vision?
0: I, I don't but you tell okay, us. So
1: in in, in, the, in the screw tape letters of CS posts, there's a point where uh
0: screw tape, the mm-hmm. Mm And yet the Borg don't have, maybe collectively they do, but certainly on an individual basis, they don't have the arrogance or the pride of the evil one. They don't have that the division. The queen Yeah. Now she does, you're right, yeah. I bring
1: order to
0: chaos. Yes, I bring order to chaos by assimilating. Thank you very much. Oh. So um, I just talk to
3: my head. You know, to speculate about how the gospel resonates with those cultures, but how about 23rd century humanity, right,
1: and, and, and the way that, you know, mm-hmm. secular values have evolved there, what, what new difficulties
0: might arise? i am thinking a lot about that. Um, I mean, there's so much in the the idealism, you know, of Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future of humanity that if we can just get rid of religion and superstition, you know, then courage, virtue, selflessness—I mean, all these, all these, you know, very Christian virtues—you know—can come into fulfillment. Um, so, what are they missing, and, and what do they have wrong? Yeah. But but how? This is the means. How do we ever attain that? And Christianity yeah. says you won't without Christ. So so we we would reject the premise yeah. for sure, um, and and so one one thing that that I've been thinking about as I think about that question is the um, the scandal to the humans of the Federation would be. Christian ethics and morality, um, you know, and, and you you see bits and pieces of the way, you know, they're very happy to uh, play with human life um, in genetic manipulation, in you know, in all of these all of these things. Their, you know, their, their sexual ethics, you know, is very much kind of this secular individualistic. Um, what, what's right is to let everyone do whatever they want as long as they don't hurt anyone else. You know, where a Klingon would very much understand, well, if I do what I want, that does hurt everyone else. Um, that, that the Federation, I, I, I think maybe that's some of the scandal. Maybe that's, I mean, that's our current, a lot of our current
2: culture scandal, really, is yeah. that-
0: And the thing that, you know, the, the enterprise always struggles with, you know, this, um, the, the prime directive of, you know, the, the, the right virtuous thing to do is to respect everybody just as they are, let them develop naturally, and that, you know, there's constant conflict with that, you know, but this planet is about to explode and everyone's about to die and we could save them all, you know, is it really the right thing for us to stand by and watch? And, I mean, inherent in that narrative is, is this conflict of the boundaries of this ethic of the federation that, that don't quite work, that get jammed up. Tanya, were you... Did you have your... No? So on the subject of the
1: Prime Directive, <laughs> um, Roddenberry wrote the Prime Directive, and Picard even talks about like, the Prime Directive as sort of a response to, like, all the instances of colonialism... Yeah. Coming yep. in and like messing things up. So can you s- speculate a little bit about like what what is good about the Prime Directive and what might be taken to too much of an extent?
0: How much time have I got? Um, Less than years. <laughs> the and yeah, you know, I mean, I I grew up in a post-colonial country, and you know, when I watch Star Trek, I, I you know what I see is modern western at least in the earlier um, series white men asking okay how do we do colonialism right or how do we do exploration right how, if, if we could do the expansion of western civilization to the world all over again how would we do it better um, and if you look in um, in at least in British colonialism in a lot of the Kind of intellectual activity behind it, you know. There, there is this very strong impulse and desire. You know, anti-slavery was a big part of British imperialism. The Arabic slavers had these slave colonies. The British came, defeated the Arabs, pushed them out, set the slaves free. You know, and then took over and you know did things that were not technically slavery, although sometimes genocide. Um, and and you see the same impulse even in the history of european colonialism of of this desire to do it to do it right and to do it well and and so i certainly the um, this, the star trek series where the enterprise is you know encountering new civilizations all the time and struggling with how to do that encounter that really does seem to be asking well, you know if if it's good to go out and to you know, meet new civilizations how, how do we do this well how do we do it right and, and that prime directive of it, there's this very progressive vision behind it development you know, well we're way more developed than they are and so if we interfere <coughs> we'll hurt their own natural development You know, very much this idea well everybody's progressing and we have to let them progress in their own way of course, the history of humanity is um mostly of contact, not of isolated development um, most you know indigenous cultures have commerce with their neighbors and have lots of cultural interchange and There are very few societies that have ever developed in isolation and yeah but um
1: Yeah. But they often interact with the civilization and basically ask them, well, do you trade? Like, what, do you, is there something you want? Like, they kind yeah. of interact with them. They're not like, no, we won't trade with you or we're going to enslave you. Like, it's, do you want out of this relationship? Or, Are you oppressed yeah. by somebody? Maybe we can help with that. Or, or would you just like to develop alone and we'll never come back here?
0: Yeah, yeah and I think that's very much right. similar to what, yeah. Tanya, you. Mm hmm. Um, but one of the things that Steve did in addition to getting rid of religion is he also got rid of money yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think is a huge, has been a huge motivator in colonialism right so yes. you know like there's this uh, we have taken out the, this idea of you know not having profit Yeah. You know, once you have a replicator you don't need any you don't need anything from anywhere right Yeah. Once you take money out of a situation like people just do what they need to do.
2: Yeah. Often not. Right. And often it is colonialism, right? Yeah. Often it is like very triumphalistic you're right, you're wrong, you deal with it, we're in charge now. Yeah. Right? Um, and they kinda go hand in hand. We have the money and the resources, we got the guns,
0: like ooh, whatever. Yeah. Right? We get the better swords or you know. And and this, um I we see this right now. Um Anyone who's who's been over to East Africa to visit the Orthodox churches there, uh, you know, a profound um, a profound difference in terms of wealth, and and our attitude is those of us who come from abroad, our attitude is often like that of the Federation. Well, we've got the replicators, you know, whatever you need, we'll just make it for you, um, you know, whatever you need, we'll just give it to you. Like, I mean. Goodness! It only costs twenty thousand dollars to build a beautiful church. Yeah, sure. Here's the cash, which in very often you know does not respect the ver- you know the history, the capacity, and the hard work of local people, and and you know can be can be humiliating. Um, yeah. You had something. yeah yeah i 'm familiar with there 's a few people groups in Brazil and the Amazon who um, and in New Guinea and in some islands off of India as well where the government you know has a very formal prime directive don 't touch these people leave them alone' it 's illegal to contact them uh, a few years ago got in the news when this this young man from Washington, I think, um, made contact with a, a very small community on a very isolated island that, where it was illegal to make contact with them. And he was killed, and there is this big argument over like, well, you know he deserved it, he should never have gone. All, all kinds of, of questions about that. Um, and, and again, you know, there are these isolated cultures. But humanity at large has never been isolated. And 50 people on an island, you know, until 100 years ago, those, that tiny community on that island were not isolated. They had contact and commerce. And at some moment, the decision was made, they want to be cut off, we'll cut them off. You know, and now the genetic pool, you can't, you can't survive without contact. And the same with these small tribes in the Amazon. You can't survive without contact and interchange. And I guess a, a final word, as I, as I see our time is coming to an end. The, um, this, is, this is part of the reason the Federation has decided, you know, to go out and make contact, is that if, if contact happens by chance, you know, Picard talks about, well, you know, wars start. You know, we, if, we can, if we can go and see, okay, you've developed warp capacity. You're about to meet this community of the universe Let's make sure the meeting goes well. You know Let's come in peace, introduce ourselves, and be open and willing to share so that you don't you know just discover the Cardassians by accident and start a war and, and so that that's a maybe one one impulse for the prime directive and and certainly with with evangelism, you know we can think of that you know contact is going to happen. Um, people are going to hear about Christ. Is Christ going to be a Western God who brings an airplane with, with wealth? Is, is that what their, their image of Christianity is going to be? Can we go and make first contact so that the contact does go well and so that it's the gospel that is brought? Thank you again.